Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome President David Thomas to the guest chair today as we talk about HBCUs and the Morehouse Mystique. Dr. David Thomas became the 12th president of Morehouse College in January 2018. Prior to becoming the president of Morehouse, Dr. Thomas served as the dean of Georgetown University's McDonald School of Business and was a professor at Harvard Business School and the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. He received his bachelor's, master's, and PhD from Yale and has authored a plethora of top-tier articles within the organizational behavior field and has co-authored three groundbreaking books. President Thomas, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you, Oscar. It's great to be here. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. The PhD project aims to increase workplace diversity by starting at the source of tomorrow's workforce, the college campus. In college, professors are the main role models and mentors for students. But until 1994, almost no business professors were African-American, Hispanic American, or Native American. The PhD project is changing all that. It has encouraged more than 1,000 underrepresented minorities to earn a doctoral degree. That's the ticket qualifying them to become business professors. As faculty, they are encouraging and assisting countless young minority students nationwide to pursue business careers. The model is simple. Diversify the head of the classroom and you'll diversify the pool of students who'll be tomorrow's business leaders. It's working. 90% of PhD project participants complete the challenging five-year path to a business doctorate. And 97% of those have become professors. Corporate America supports the PhD project. It was founded by KPMG Foundation and City, along with AACSB International and the Graduate Management Admission Council. Many top companies fund the project. The PhD project is changing the face of business academe. Interested in becoming a professor? Visit us online to apply to attend our annual conference. Want to learn how the project can help its funders recruit minority talent on campus? Visit our website. David, you're a trailblazer in the field of management, and I've admired and respected you since I started my PhD program. I still remember at the Academy of Management in 2010, we were in Montreal, and we were in the same symposium. I was awestruck, like, this is the David Thomas that I'm presenting in this symposium with. You're like legit Academy Management royalty. So although we've never collaborated on research project, I want you to know that You've always been like a mentor to me in my head. <laughs> so this conversation that we're having today is like getting an A publication for me. So I'm so excited to talk to you today about HBCUs and specifically Morehouse, which is my husband's alma mater and where our two-year-old son is already committed to attending. <laughs> so David, let's get started. Thank you for those kind words and your introduction. Oh, my pleasure. You have an impressive career history. So can you explain some of what you would deem to be the important arcs of your journey from college on that set you on this path to be a trailblazer management professor? The important arcs, first arc was discovering why I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and discovering why being a lawyer wouldn't take me where I wanted to be and discovering why organizational behavior could. I wanted to be a lawyer because I grew up in the era of the civil rights movement. 
And there were two college educated professionals that you saw. You saw preachers and you saw lawyers. And I thought lawyers changed the world. Got to college and realized as I got to know lawyers, that really wasn't what they did. I found organizational behavior, which was all about change and about groups and how individuals develop and uh, how identity is formed and intergroup relations and how you change institutions. And that adds up to the possibility of changing the world. And that's what brought me to organizational behavior. That was the first arc. The second arc was realizing that what I loved was being at the intersection of theory and practice. And the great thing about organizational behavior is you go out into the real world, you study real phenomena, you make sense of it, you develop theories about how the world works, and the next iteration is to go out and see if your theories actually enable more effective practice. And that's what I love. The next arc of my career was I wound up at a business school and I thought I was going to be at a school of education or public policy. I would also go back and say the other arc of my career is that throughout my life, I've been blessed with great mentors. I found several mentors doing my travel to become a professor at a business school who was doing work on race and leadership and organizational dynamics, which at the time people told me not to do. I remember when I was thinking about my thesis, I had two topics. One was what you might consider to be race neutral. And the other was about the influence of race on superior subordinate relationships and mentoring relationships in organizations. And I got lots of advice not to do the one that explicitly spoke to race. And I also got encouragement from my mentors to go with your passion. And I went with my passion and the rest is my story. So I don't think it's would be a surprise to you that even today, you know, many students get that same advice about not doing research and diversity, equity, inclusion areas, specifically when we talk about things like race. For you to have so much success over your career and, and have this ability to look back, what would you say to new PhD students now? I, I kind of feel like I understand what you would say, but what do you say to the people who are advising students to stay away from these types of topics? I would say to them, the question is not, and, and what my mentors said to me was, the question is not, should you do research on what you are passionate about, but it's understanding what the minefields are that will be in front of you if you make that choice. And then to ask yourself the question, are you committed to pursuing excellence? in the context of those frictions, right? And I remember an advisor said to me, he said, you know, at the end of the day, lots of people are gonna give a job talk to get a job at a prestigious school. And what will come through is whether you are passionate about your work and whether you are excellent in its execution. Now, if you look at my pattern of publication, 
I knew where where I was playing. And so, you know, I've published in the best journals in our field. Administrative Science Quarterly was at the top when I was coming through. I've won their award for the most influential article of the last five years. I've won the Academy of Management's award for the most influential book of the year. And each one of those, you know, was squarely focused on the question of race. And that's because if I wanted to be successful, I had to also commit to meeting the standards, the highest standards of the academy, so that at the end of the day, the only thing people could say is we don't like the topic. And you got to have some hope that there are rational people with integrity on these review committees. And at least two out of your three reviewers will say he's met the best standards of the academy, whether I like the topic or not. It's an important topic. Let's publish it. Gotcha. So like there is so much more that I want to go down that road, but I want to bring us back to uh, Morehouse. Right. And, and so speaking of prestigious institutions, uh, your appointment is remarkable in a number of respects. First, it's quite uncommon for tenured Ivy League professors right, to become presidents of HBCUs. But also Morehouse hadn't had a non-alum as their president in over 50 years. So you spoke about wanting to go to Morehouse, which was your dream school, but you weren't able to. So can you share with our listeners the circumstances behind this and what it means to you today to now be there leading this great institution? I uh, grew up in a family where I had great parents, but neither one had finished high school. But they told me that education was the ticket to do whatever I wanted in the world. And they convinced me I could do whatever I wanted. And I used to go to work with my father at night. He was a janitor. And I used to help him. He used to say to me, you hate doing this. If you go to college, you won't have to do this. And I remember I was five or six years old, seven years old. I started going with him when I was five, cleaning ashtrays. I said, I don't know what college is. I don't know anybody who's gone, but I know I'm going. I read about Martin Luther King probably when I was nine years old. He had gone to Morehouse. I decided I was going to Morehouse. And then I learned more about Morehouse as I got older. I applied to only two undergraduate schools, Morehouse and Yale, got into both. Yale gave me a full ride. Morehouse didn't give me any money. You're a poor kid. You follow the money. But as I learned about Morehouse, I realized that they weren't just a school. They actually represented something that our country needed and continues to need in their imagination is black male excellence can be produced at scale, not as an exception, but as an expectation. And so coming here today is really about the opportunity to further creating the proof of that idea. And people talk about the Morehouse mystique. I don't believe in the Morehouse mystique. Right, that was one of my questions to explain to people about this mystique. So it's the Morehouse idea. Morehouse is an idea in the same way that America is an idea that we have decided is worth waking up every day and attempting to perfect. If you go back to the formation of this country, 
There was no sovereign nation on the planet governed by the rules that formed the American idea. Democracy, one person, one vote, although it was instituted in an imperfect way. Only white men with property could vote. But the idea of one man, one vote, guaranteed individual rights, the idea of free markets and democracy and individual rights, guaranteed individual rights, and that all men are created equal, that idea didn't exist anywhere else on the planet that governed an entire sovereign nation. We wake up every day trying to perfect that same idea. Black male excellence produced at scale as an expectation is an idea, not yet perfected, but we have to wake up every day to make it more perfect. And you can't achieve the American idea without achieving the Morehouse idea. And so that's the draw to come to Morehouse. I love the way you phrase this idea, this Morehouse idea of Black excellence produced at scale. So being in academia, I know how my schedule looks like. What's like a typical work week for you as a president of Morehouse? You know, and what part of that week is like most rewarding to you? It's hard to say there's a typical week. And when I'm on campus and we're not shut down because of COVID, there's one aspect of my day that is constant. And the rest of my day varies from day to day. And most days, what I thought was going to be my day when I woke up at 7.30 in the morning, got dressed, turns out not to be the day I had. But a constant of it is every day I walk to and from work and I encounter a thousand young black men on the move and in search of excellence and understanding who they are and what they can do in the world. And they are doing that without the shadow of being Black, oppressing them to lower their expectations or to put themselves in the position of having to answer other people's questions about them rather than their own questions about themselves. And I see that and I experience it when they stop me on the street and they ask me all kinds of questions that have to do at the end of the day with them attempting to discover who they are. And with some belief that they can stop me and A, I'm available to them, right? So stopping me is okay. And B, that I might have something to say that's relevant to their journey. That happens every day when I'm on campus, because I right, walk into work, coming back from work, I walk right by the, uh, the cafeteria. So brothers got to eat. So there's always, you know, a crowd there. And that reminds me, no matter how good or bad my day is going to be or has been, why it's important to be here. That's great. So I want you to elaborate on that concept of importance. And just to our listeners, you know, there's considerable diversity among the group of HBCUs. So I don't want people to think the group is a monolith. But could you elaborate more on um, why HBCUs are so important to our American idea? 
Oscar, I'm, I'm always, I always want to be respectful of the fact that I only know one HBCU and there are 114, I think today, accredited HBCUs in our country. And they are as diverse as the diversity that exists in higher education. So I can speak to Morehouse as a historically black college. And I think, you know, the way I, what I say about Morehouse is, Morehouse is a place where young black men can come in the most important period of their adult development and just be, and just be. Be who they are without the noise of being a black man in a society that was essentially designed to devalue you. And despite all the progress we've made, right, those dynamics of devaluation still exist. And so I have two experiences that my students repeat to me on multiple occasions and alumni that I think sort of bring together the power of a Morehouse for the development of a young black man who is academically capable. One is the student who grew up like I grew up, predominantly black, urban, poor community, where being academically excellent is not the coin of the realm, where you almost feel like you're a unicorn because you're smart and want to excel, and where you're rewarded in some ways because you so stand out from the average but you're not, you're not in a place that's challenging you fully. And they come to Morehouse and because, you know, like me, I graduated third in a class of 1200, thought I was, you know, it. And then they get to Morehouse and 25% of the students were valedictorians. Right. I graduated third and they're all black men and their bar gets raised. The other example is my son, Went to predominantly white high school, highly educated parents, private school, many classes. He was the only black kid. He did well academically, but he was not the best student in the class. Mm -hmm. And because he did well, he was that smart black guy. But nobody said to him, you can be better. You should be the best guy in the class because they were just happy to see a black guy doing well. But something inside of him said, I can be the best. Both of those students show up at Morehouse and the demand is and the expectation is that you can be the best in every class that you're in. And they look around and they see that black male excellence is not an exception. And it influences their expectations of themselves and their expectations of being black men. All of a sudden, being a smart black guy is not special, nor is simply being a black guy special. So you got to work on what is your specialness? What makes you excellent? And I went to great colleges and universities. I worked at great ones and I did well, obviously. But I was never in an environment where people thought from the outset, I could be that guy. Even now, I go back to my alma mater, Yale, and I have people say, I'm so surprised. I, I didn't know you were that smart. And I'm kind of like, ain't nothing changed. <laughs> oh, 
Wow. You brought up your son, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Do you want to share any more about him, what path he's taking now? I have two sons. Okay. And one of whom I look back on it, and I think if he had gone to Morehouse, his journey today, he's 30 years old, would be different because it's post-college that he's had to come to himself not finding himself to be an exception because he's smart and he's intelligent and he's creative. And he's that kid who showed up on a white college who was six foot one, was a high school basketball star, but decided he didn't want to play because he loved philosophy and he loved poetry only to everywhere he turned, somebody to ask him which team was he on. And then to be surprised to find out that he didn't play sports and to be surprised that he was for an undergraduate student. He was gifted in his knowledge of Greek anthropology and its relationship to its origins or rather to Greek mythology and its origins in Ethiopian mysticism. And he felt like he was a unicorn. He wouldn't have been a unicorn at Morehouse. And so I think if he had had that experience, my other son is a gifted young man, went to a predominantly white institution for undergraduate. Interesting thing about him was I went out, he was, he was in school in LA. And so I went to LA and I had dinner with a group of alumni right after my son had graduated, he was working. And we're walking out of the restaurant after he's listened to this intergenerational group of Morehouse alums. And my youngest son had done very well in college. And I turned to him and I said, you know, if your older brother had gone to Morehouse, it really would have made a difference. And he turned to me and he said, Dad, if I had gone to Morehouse, it would have made a difference. Like he said in that conversation, a kid who had done extraordinarily well at his elite, predominantly white institution, but he could sit in that conversation and realized what he didn't get. So that's my sons. They're great guys. Sound like it. Similar to your sons, I went to predominantly white institutions. You know, one of them would be considered an, an elite private school for my master's, flagship school for the PhD, and done pretty well in my career as well. But having been around the group, my husband obviously attended alumni events and things. I can say it's like your son. Like it would have made a difference for me as well if I had attended Morehouse. And uh, who knows, like, what more I may have accomplished to this point. What I would also say to you is what people may not appreciate because it's hard to estimate objectively is the impact of all those who did have the HBCU experience who are in the lives of others who did not. And whatever that intangible thing is that they bring that I think is a confidence about who they are and what they can be. And in some ways, a lack of sensitivity to the forces that are there to make you doubt yourself because they didn't have them. So when you encounter them after you're fully formed as an adult, they impact you less rather than, you know, when you're 18 years old, like me, and I walk into a class and nobody thinks that I could be that guy who's going to go to the top of the class. 
and I'm being asked all kinds of questions that seem to me like totally askew from how I think of myself. And then I realize they're racialized. And now I got to decide how am I going to respond to that? I can become ultra stereotypical. So I become the guy from the hood. And I'll say for myself, I grew up in a neighborhood that would be considered the hood, but nobody in my neighborhood would have said that I was hood. I got to Yale and people called me hood, you know, right? In my neighborhood, I would go and play basketball. Somebody would get ready to fight me. And my boys would jump in and say, oh, no, 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 no. That's our college boy, not our hood boy. That's our college boy. I get to Yale, I represent the hood, right? So now I got to make a choice. Am I going to be hood? And that's all stereotype. When I came home to my house and I was hood, my father would say, we not hood here. But I know how to be hood, look hood, act hood. Or do I act against that and try to do everything to let people know that I'm not hood? Which means that in some ways I go overboard in denying aspects of myself that are who I am. Right. Well, if you come to Morehouse, none of that's just not the contested terrain. And, and you have the benefit of seeing, like I said, the diversity of Black men and the experiences that they bring. So you're right. just not left with this one impression of right. who Black man is. Exactly. Even around issues of masculinity. I think you see every performance of masculinity. Masculinity is a performance. And you see every performance here that's out there. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're a man. So, again, like I can go down so many topics <laughs> that I want to talk to you about, but I know our time is limited. We're both higher ed administrators and, and there's many great things. And we're going to talk about more of the great things about Morehouse. But there are a lot of challenges as well. And, and some of these challenges in higher education was pre-pandemic and the pandemic just exacerbated some challenges that we have. So, you know, despite the lustrous history and, and the bright future, you care to talk about, you know, what are some of the current challenges? Um, that Morehouse, and, and if you want to talk about other HBCUs as well, what are some of those challenges that they're facing, and what is the, the path forward that you see? The largest challenge for colleges like Morehouse, and I think HBCUs in general, in particular those that are private and therefore have no state funding, is affordability, and that is true for liberal private liberal arts colleges broadly, but it's acutely true for historically Black colleges and universities. So if you look at the colleges that our students tend to get into, 70% of our students get into the top public college available to them and or one of the top 100 liberal arts colleges in the country. The publics are less expensive, and most of those top 100 liberal arts colleges have much more capacity to offer aid than we do. So affordability is, for me, the biggest issue that we face, followed by the way that for the last 30 years, Many historically Black colleges have managed the pressure on their finances is to defer work on our physical and technological infrastructure. So 
many of our historically black colleges, including Morehouse, have aspects of our physical infrastructure that are somewhere between crumbling and inadequate. Likewise, with technology. And as we move into a world that, you know, the average students who show up on campus today, they're sort of what they take for granted about what technology should enable, you know, defies the mind of a 65 year old like me, right? Like, you know, my students don't understand why they have to stand in line for anything. They can do Google Eats and have food delivered. So why are they standing in line to get their ID, to register for a class, to, you know, you name it. Not to mention, why can't every lecture be available online? Like, why penalize me? Because I didn't show up for the lecture. It was the lecture class. I showed up for my small group to get the lecture online. (laughs) And that technological capability, you know, those are the biggest challenges for us. Accessibility and technological and physical infrastructure. And I think the challenges for us are developing the full array of resources needed to make our students viable for the opportunities in the 21st century. And, you know, what we've learned at Morehouse is we can't do everything by ourselves. But if we can create what we're calling partnerships of purpose with other institutions, and a great example is Spelman and Morehouse, Spelman College, which is our sister school um, for women. If we can create joint offering, we can satisfy many of the needs of our students at a level that by ourselves we could not afford to do. And this, you know, and another partner of ours is Clark Atlanta University. We're all part of a consortium called the Atlanta University Consortium. We just launched a data analytics institute that will provide data analytics to all of our students across all three campuses in a coordinated, non-duplicative way. And data analytics is something that every student needs exposure to is going to be viable in the 21st century. I don't care if you're going to be a poet, be a bioinformatics PhD, you need to understand data. So, you know, and we're doing that in a number of other areas, entrepreneurship, curatorial studies, preparing students to go into the medical professions. So I think the future for HBCUs is finding ways while preserving our distinctive brands to collaborate, to multiply the effect of our individual resources. Thank you so much. Uh, So while we wind down in terms of time, I I want you to elaborate a little bit more because in such a short period of time, you've had amazing accomplishments already at Morehouse. And so can you talk about a few more of those accomplishments and, you know, what are some that you're most proud of that you've been able to do in such a short period of time? Well, I'll just start with, I think that we've done a good job of putting Morehouse back in the imagination of our community and our constituency as a college that's not just relevant to the 21st century, to the 20th century, right? And touting our great graduates 
mm-hmm. like Martin Luther King. But to have people see Morehouse as a force in shaping the 21st century and having our students feel that, right? And our alumni and our faculty. So that's one of those intangible things that you can feel. But I would argue that if we can maintain that, I can disappear from the planet tomorrow and all the other accomplishments will take care of themselves. Accomplishments like we're seeing record applications and enrollment numbers. In the last three and a half years, we will have raised over $200 million. That's more than in the tenure of any president in Morehouse's history. And I've been here three and a half years. We are seeing ourselves partnering with the best and most prominent institutions in the country around things that range from opportunities for our students to conversations about K-12 education. We are launching the first Morehouse online degree program targeting men with some college credit, but who never finished. Mm-hmm. Turns out there are 34 million black men alone with at least one college credit who never finished. And that's about extending the impact of Morehouse beyond our 66 acre campus in a world where a college degree continues to increasingly be a currency in our society. And at the cost of sounding arrogant, Morehouse is the good housekeeping seal of male excellence. And we will be able to give that to non-traditional students. And we know that your human capital matters when people are evaluating you for opportunities. And that opens up a huge set of opportunities for us to be influential. So those are the things. And, And I'm also proud of the fact that we have found ways to reinvest in our infrastructure. And I think we're squarely focused on, for our traditional students, making the Morehouse experience an extraordinary living and learning experience. Well, thank you so much, President Thomas, for joining me in the guest chair today. I'm so honored to have had this conversation with you today, particularly because I know like years later, my son will be able to listen to this. It's like, you know, oh my God, dad was talking to the president of the college that he's going to attend 16 years from now. But also for all the people who will listen to this episode, you know, will want to attend Morehouse and support other HBCUs as well. I'm so proud of all that you are accomplishing at Morehouse and I sincerely wish you all the best. Thank you. Well, thank you, Oscar. And let me just say that you said that you had followed my career. I'm also aware of yours and the exceptional impact that you are having as a scholar of organization and management. And what I'm, what I'm also impressed by is the way in which your generation of scholars are really seizing the mechanisms to influence the broader public around important issues. And this podcast, in my view, 
is as important as any article that you could be writing in this moment. If our goal is not just to do well, but to do good. You don't even know how much that means to me that you said that. Thank you so much. All right. Be, be well. Be well. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work. We'll keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, The PhD Project. Please support their mission by donating to The PhD Project. And if you're interested in a PhD in business, you can find more information on their website by visiting www.phdproject.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting, professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Mary. Until next time, peace and love.